Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a great break. I wanted to let you know about something that I've been talking a lot about on social media at Zibby Owens, which is the hashtag 22 and 22 challenge. We are... At Zibby Books, we are encouraging everybody, like all of you, to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. And we're going to provide a whole series of incentives for every five visits, and you'll be entered to win a $500 shopping spree, and you'll get fun things like bookmarks and all the rest. Plus, you'll be part of a great community of people all helping support bookstores, authors, and more. We're really, really excited about it. If you want to join, sign up. You just go to 22in22.net. That's 22in22.net and click I'm in and put your information. And then every time you go to a bookstore, you just quickly go back on the site and click log a bookstore visit. And then we'll be keeping track and we'll be following up with all of your different achievements and awards and everything. So please sign up, spread the word, 22 and 22, get your friends to join and start visiting bookstores and 
It'll be really fun and exciting. So here's to a wonderful 2022. I'm so excited that you're listening to my podcast and doing all the fun things that I have been trying to bring into the world. So here we go, 2022. Hashtag 22 in 22. Jacqueline Friedland is the author of He Gets That From Me, a novel. Jacqueline is the author of the award-winning novels Trouble the Water and That's Not a Thing. She holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and a JD from NYU Law School. She practiced as an attorney in New York for a hot second before transitioning to writing full-time. She lives in New York with her husband, four children, and two very bossy dogs. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss He Gets That From Me. Hi, Zibi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's so neat. I actually was talking to Kyle because I was reading your book and he was like, wait, I remember when we first met her and she was talking about how she was working on this book and here it is. So I don't know. I feel like some sort of investment that we've seen this, you know, come to fruition. So it's exciting. For sure. It is. It's a long process though. I actually just yesterday was a guest speaker for a high school literary club and they were asking me about the process to publication and they they were all flabbergasted that they're like, wait, it takes that long. It takes that long to write a book. And then it's another year or two years before it comes out or three years. They couldn't digest this at all. But I told them it's good to be patient. It's a good lesson in patience, uh, putting books out into the world. Yes. Very, very true. Okay. Can you tell listeners what your book is about, please? Sure. It is the story of a young woman who serves as a surrogate mother only to discover 10 years after the fact that she accidentally gave away her own biological child. And how did you come up with this? So I was working on a different book and it was in very beginning stages and I was procrastinating like you do and reading. I don't even remember what publication. I think it might've been People Magazine online. And I saw an article about a woman who, an American woman, who served as a surrogate for a couple from China. And the, she was supposed to deliver twin babies who were going to be the genetic offspring of this Chinese couple. And when the twins were born, one of the babies looked like the Chinese parents and the other baby appeared to be black, like the surrogate's husband. So, you know, all parties involved kind of scratched their heads, but still sent both babies home with this Chinese couple. And I guess, you know, over the next month, everybody kind of, wised up to the fact that like they should investigate. And it took them a month to figure it out and to figure out that the surrogate had actually gotten pregnant. She had been implanted with embryos and they thought that two had attached, but it turned out only one of the embryos took. And then when she was cleared to have intercourse with her husband, she got pregnant again, you know, the natural way. And so the first thing I was like, wait, but if she was already pregnant, how'd she get pregnant again? Right. So I'm, you know, immediately on Google and looking this up. And it turns out that this is actually something that happens. It's a thing that women who are pregnant can get pregnant again. It's just so incredibly rare that nobody ever tells you about it. It's called superfetation and it's a real thing. And they actually think that a lot of fraternal twins may have been conceived this way and that there's just not really a need to delve into the, you know, to do all that testing on the pregnant mothers to figure out if, you know, they might have a, a weak difference or the, in their gestational age or, you know, what, but it explains a lot like why one twin is often much bigger than the other and things like that. But so I went on Google, found all this out, and then I was just so floored by the entire thing 
that I, it really just stayed on my mind. And I got to thinking, you know, what if the families had been the same race and then they might not have realized, you know, that something was amiss. And what if it had been, you know, what if something happened 10 years later where they found out? And then what do you do when you discover you have a child that you had no idea was out there and do you take it back? Do you not? And so immediately was, I was like, I have to write this story. That's how the book came about. Wow. I love how that's how novelists think. <laughs> that when you know all the what ifs, instead of just being like, okay, yeah, what if, and leaving it at that, it's like, well, now I have to write a novel about it. <laughs> they say, you know, that novelists have their, they have more fear in general in life and anxiety because they go to every what if and they play out every possible scenario. So, you know, the minute you put me on an airplane, I'm a disaster because I, imagine immediately all these terrible, crazy things. And me too. I'm like immediately like at my memorial service and like yeah. I've gone the whole route, who would be left? How would they find out? Like yeah. blah, blah, blah. What if this plane? What if that plane? What if on the way back? Yeah. What if, da, 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 da. yeah. I'm like the queen. This I think is why I like love what I do because every day I talk to people who like ha- share my anxiety and it's That's like really. amazing. That's <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I'm like drafting my eulogy to send to my sister and like, read this at my funeral, you know, sending it from the plane. Yeah, exactly. I know. I'm like, well, should I book the place or should I give my list of spots? And, you know, I don't know. Anyway, yes. So the what ifs of the world. But yes. So I thought it was really interesting the way this plot sort of evolved, right? And how it slowly manifested, especially from the point of view of a gay couple and how when they found out when so for a lot of gay couples who have twins it's often the case that one is from one one guy's sperm and one is from the other and so they both feel like vested interests biologically in their kids and so one of the ramifications of finding this out in your book was that one dad ends up not having a biological child and the other dad does and so he feels sort of alone in that grief because essentially he's just lost what he thought was like the continuation of his DNA and his offspring and all of that. So tell me a little bit about that piece of the puzzle. I found that really interesting. So, you know, I, there were, first of all, when I was researching the book, I learned so much about third-party assisted reproduction and all of the different ways that, that couples and families can be built. And there's apparently, you know, if you have two women who want to be, to want to raise children together, oftentimes they will take the egg from one woman and fertilize it outside of her body and then implant it in the other woman so that so the other one carries the pregnancy and then they're both equally you know vested and they can both feel like the mother of this child and there's so many different scenarios like that in different ways that families figure out to include different people and you know have everyone be a part of it but there's also you know there's adoption where nobody was involved in the pregnancy and it sort of it got me just to thinking you know we as parents project so much onto our children and believe so deeply that, you know, um, this trait they got from me, this one they got from their dad, this is from their grandmother. And we think we know our kids so well. And, you know, but then you think about like your own parents and how well they think they know you and how much you may think they're wrong. (laughs) And I really sort of wanted to play on the, the, this idea that, you know, the kid, the the nature versus nurture question may be different than anything that you know we've ever thought about, and the way you build a family may be different than anything that we've ever thought about. And so, when one dad has a, a son that he can say this child is biologically mine, 
he projects certain certain ideas onto that child. And when the other dad finds out that neither child is biologically his, he sort of has to question everything and really look into, well, what is it to be a father? And what is it to have a child? And how independent of me is my child or should he be? And I really just wanted to play with all of those questions. And so that's kind of how it came about. And the impact between the siblings, which becomes like a really big thing, you know, like how did the sibling, how do they feel themselves, right? Because all these paternity and issues that arise, you always are thinking, you go straight to the parents, right? But even at age 10, they have their own feelings. 10 years is a long time. I mean, yes, yes. It actually, it when I started drafting the book, my entire perspective was really about Kai, the boy who, you know, is genetically not related to the father that he thought he was. And I was looking at it from, you know, what his Kai missed. He has missed 10 years with his biological parents. He has missed 10 years with a biological sibling, with his grandparents and all with his religion, with his, you know, all sorts of heritage. As I got deeper into the draft, I sort of realized, wait a minute, it's not only Kai who's missed it. It's the parents and the grandparents and the siblings. And, you know, it's sort of like, and maybe Kai didn't, maybe Kai didn't miss anything because he got something else mm-hmm. where everybody else, there's just sort of a hole where Kai should have been. So, you know, in that regard, I think also the sibling relationship was an interesting way to play with it. Because if you think about like some siblings get, especially twins, you know, can really rely on each other and really get close and in a way that that is very different from the parent-child relationship. And so, you know, I think there's a loyalty that often exists between siblings that is really, is unique. And when somebody sort of like attacks your relationship with your sibling, you almost get more protected than you ever would vis-a-vis like a parent relationship. So for me, and also I, you know, when they, when you write a book, they tell you write what you know. And, you know, I've never had a child through surrogacy but I know I have four kids of my own. So parenting is something I know. And the idea of, you know, having my, my biological children in my house versus somewhere across the country where I never knew they were was something that I could really sort of imagine and play with. And I also have a sibling who I, you know, a sister who's a couple of years older, who has been such a, you know, a force in my life. And so I could play on that and, you know, imagine what it would be if somebody told me, actually, you guys aren't related. And so it was interesting, actually, as I've been getting reviews and feedback on the book, a lot of people have said, you know, as a gay dad, this book resonated with me. As a parent, this book resonated with me. All, and all sorts of things like that. But what really meant the most to me was one person contacted me through my website and told me that her daughter, who's in college, read the book, and she's a twin. And that it really, she just was so struck by the book and, you know, the looking at the twin relationship and and how important it is to twins to have that relationship and that identity. And then when you sort of not attack it, it becomes how heart-wrenching it is. So that was a very interesting facet of the book for me. Wow. I have twins. I don't know how they would feel. I don't know. They'd probably both be like, okay, you go. (laughs) You can go to that family. I'll take this family. How old are your kids now, by the way? I have 17-year-old, 15, 13, and almost 11. Wow. And what, ge- what genders are they? Three boys. And then my youngest is a girl. And oh. my, my oldest just got into college and I, it has completely adjusted my entire perspective on parenting. Everybody says, you know, it goes by in a blink. And all of a sudden I'm, I really realized he's leaving. And so I've been nicer to all of my children and like, spend time with me, give me an extra hug. You know, all of a sudden it really, 
it's hitting me. <laughs> I feel like I went through that early when my son went to boarding school at a very oh. young age and uh-huh. I like, mourned that. So mm-hmm. yes, I feel like by the time he goes to college, I'll just be like, all right, see you, see you later. <laughs> but no, I, yes, of course it does. It's crazy. I mean, to be honest, the fact that my son can now like walk around the city by himself and it's like not a big deal, like uh-huh. all of a sudden, uh-huh. that's been like the biggest shock to me. I'm like, okay, you're very hard to decide where you go. <laughs> Yep. I mean, that's something I think about. So my oldest can drive now and he'll go out and, you know, he sort of tells me where he's going. I have a general idea, but there's this letting go that's really difficult. And I, it actually, he was getting his license as I was finishing this book. And I was, you know, it's, there's this, like, there's a scene in the book where Maggie, the the woman who served as a surrogate, she's in New York and she has left her children, her son with a friend in Arizona. And she calls up her friend to say, you know, how's Wyatt? Do you need me? What's happening? And the friend says, he's fine. He doesn't need you. He's fine. Go do your stuff. He doesn't need you. And when she they hang up the phone, the he doesn't need you really resonates with Maggie. And she's like, wait a minute. Uh, you know, does anybody need me? And do we as parents need our kids more than they need us? Mm-hmm. And it's, that's actually something that as I'm watching my own kids kind of get grown and flown a little, I'm really thinking about, you know, it's the same joke you hear about, you know, adults go out to dinner with their friends and show pictures of their kids, but you know, their kids aren't out showing off pictures of their parents, you know? Yeah. So it's an adjustment letting go. I will say that. I loved grown and flown the website, by the way. Do you yes. want to read those yes. essays? Oh my gosh. Maridel yes. and Lisa and the book too, those the collection of essays. Now, I feel like that might have been two years ago. I had them on for that book, but those were really those should come up like every year. They should. They should. It's. A, I think it's like it should be required reading. For it them. should. Yes, it yeah. should. Here is what to expect when you're expecting, and let's jump ahead to when they leave, and yeah. that is survive eighteen years. <laughs> oh my goodness. So when you saw the article and people, and you're like, I have to write this novel. What did you do next? Like, what happened and did you outline the whole thing? Like, and then how long did it, it all take? Like, what did that whole thing look like? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
So I knew the first thing I had to do was research because, you know, I wanted to really get it right with surrogacy. I think that the fact that surrogacy exists is a wonderful thing for so many people. And I didn't want to write the book in a way that might dissuade anyone from ever pursuing surrogacy as an option for their family. And I also just didn't want to get anything wrong because I just, I feel like as an author, you have a responsibility when you're sort of introducing a concept to people who might not be familiar with it or, or writing, you know, historical fiction, whatever it may be. People think they're learning when they're reading your book. So you, you have this responsibility to kind of get it as right as you can. So the first thing I did, I happened to have a friend who had a baby through surrogacy and her child is now 17. So when she did it, it was sort of, it was less common than it is today, but I, she's a very close friend of my family. And so when she did, did it, and as she's been raising her daughter, I've sort of had a front row seat. So she was very generous and, you know, spoke to me at length about it. And then from there, I met with a woman who runs a surrogacy agency called Growing Generations. And she also, she was so enthusiastic about the concept for the book. And she put me in touch with other people who work at her agency who just coincidentally, not coincidentally, but she specifically chose one woman in particular who served as a surrogate herself three times. And this woman then put me in touch with other people who served as surrogates. So I really spoke to a lot of people who've gone through the process. It's been much easier, you know, like where I live, I think there is a geographic component. And where I live, there are many more people who have used surrogates than who have actually served as surrogates. The only people that I have been in sort of like my social circuit, circuit, circle or my demographic area who I might interact with who serve the surrogates usually do it for someone they know. But the the people who just do it, you know, getting paid have sort of they're more like in the Midwest and more geographically spread out for me. But the good news is they they're really for the most part very happy to talk about it. These women who serve as surrogates for the most part are these like you can't believe how how giving and generous they are. They really, they don't do it for the money and the agencies won't, won't accept women who they believe are doing it only for the money. They do it because they really feel, you know, how important it is to people to have children and that they, you know, for whatever reason, have an easy time being pregnant, they enjoy it, whatever it is. And they just want to give, you know, in some way to other families. And there are people who've done it three, four times, you know, after they've had three or four kids of their own. And it's sort of, I mean, it's astounding that these like putting up with the pregnancy and then, you know, and then giving away the child that they've been carrying for nine months. And then when they make, when they actually collect the payment, it's really, they use it for things that you would be surprised sort of how like frivolous they are. Like they'll go to Disney world or they'll buy like a little, like some new furniture for their living room or whatever it is. Like they really view the money as kind of bonus money. So that was a very interesting part of like learning that was very interesting for me. And also just getting to talk to all these people who are so giving was kind of exciting and fun. And then, you know, I spoke to doctors, like fertility specialists. I spoke to attorneys in the different states where the characters go, because in each state in the country, surrogacy laws are different. So I needed to talk to people in New York. I needed to talk to people in Arizona where the book kind of starts out. And then I also, you know, spoke to people in Arizona. So there was, and then, you know, was there any, I mean, and then I also, I spoke to parents who have adopted. I spoke to same sex couples who have like, uh, you know, looked at all the options and decided not to have children. There's been, you know, it sort of runs the gamut, but it was a lot of fun to talk to all these different people and also to, to find the common threads in what they would tell me. So that was the bulk of it. Wow. 
And where do you like to do your writing? I do everything at home. I always thought when I, before I actually started writing full time, that I would be one of those writers who like goes to a coffee shop and makes friends with everyone who works there and has my standard table. I can't. The minute I go into a public place, I'm so fascinated by the world around me, especially the people, really. I don't care about the other stuff. But the minute someone walks into a store, I'm like, oh, what's she doing? What's she getting? Who's she getting? <laughs> And, and heaven forbid, I can't make sense like, oh, that's obviously like a husband and wife or obviously like a mother and son. If I see like, you know, a guy who's in his 40s and a, or not with a guy who's in his 20s, I'm like, is that an uncle and a nephew? Is it a I Like, I just, I get I immediately, I'm like building a new story about these people. So like, is it a job interview? Exactly. Maybe they work together. They used to work together. Um, you know, yeah. Oh, and then maybe it's a college interview. And then right. I want to like, Oh, college interview. That's yeah. not on my like menu of yep. options. Here. Yep. Could be anything. So, you're right. You're right. so I stay home, which is generally great for me. It was a little harder during COVID when my, you know, the height of lockdown, when my husband who I share an at-home office with, was here every single day. And I discovered that 95% of his job is talking on the phone really loudly. But (laughs) I I developed a system. I put the earbuds in and I actually started listening. I started with classical music. It wasn't working for me. Lyrics distract me. So I ended up listening to Scottish, like classical Scottish music, which is mostly bagpipes. And and it's now this like Pavlovian response. When I hear bagpipes, I get in the zone right away and I'm like writing away. So, but he's, he's back in his office now. So I only have bagpipes twice a week when he works from home. That is so funny. You would rather be listening to, to bagpipes away than your husband chatting. Okay. Well, whatever. Great. I'm glad you found a way out of that. (laughs) That's so funny. And how about now? What are you working on? So I'm at the tail end of another historical fiction novel. I have this bad habit of switching from genre to genre when I write, and I I can't seem to stop myself, but I find these stories and I get very, you know, one track mind, like this is the story I want to tell. And when my first book was historical fiction, my next two were contemporary fiction. But when I was researching for the first historical fiction, I stumbled on a story about a runaway slave, a true story, and these two Northern abolitionists who helped this man. And it's a fascinating story that was a national sensation at the time that it occurred. This guy was, you know, a household name. And these two abolitionists, Anne and Wendell Phillips, really did so much for the abolitionist cause. And they're not, most people don't know anything about them. And they're really interesting. And I, so I had to tell the story and that's, that's what I've been working on. Wow. Yes. I was especially excited about it because Anne, the wife, was an incredibly influential abolitionist. And as a female at the time in which she was living, she sort of had to do all of her work through her husband. So it becomes, it, it's, it's an interesting story. And it was, that was super fun to research. And almost everything included in the book is like true history down to, you know, the, the eclipse that happened on a particular date or the newspaper articles that are quoted. So it's been a fun project for me. And I know you have this like tight-knit group of fellow authors. How, when did that come about? And like, when did, when did you consider yourself an author and how did And what's like the importance of the author community to you? So I think many authors would say they're still, you know, they could publish 12 books and still not consider themselves an author. (laughs) That There's always this like imposter syndrome, fear in the background. But I would say I got comfortable saying I was an author after my first book was, was published and, you know, out there in the world. 
Um, one thing when I was a kid and trying to figure out my career and, you know, would in passing say to my mother, you know, maybe I want to be a writer. And she would tell me, you know, that sounds lovely, but you know, it's so much time by yourself and it's really isolating. And you should think about that because you, you know, really like to be with people. And, and before I was a writer, I was a lawyer. And I have to say that I have made so many more friends as a writer than I ever made as a lawyer. The lawyer job I found very isolating and, you know, antisocial, but I, it's been incredible to be a part of this author community. The, I have found that the authors that I come across, everybody is so supportive there's none of this, you know, competition. And if your book sells, mine doesn't kind of idea. I think it's any, if anybody's book succeeds, the book industry as a whole is succeeding and that's good for all of us. And I think there's an understanding of how hard it is to put your book out there, to put yourself out there, to take these risks. And so everyone is so supportive of each other in that way also. And, um, it's been, I mean, I remember before my first book came out, I went to hear a historical fiction panel and I just happened to, you know, I just introduced myself to the authors who were on the panel. And then there was somebody's publicist was there and the publicist who, you know, was not my publicist was like, oh, you've got to meet this person who is a bookstagrammer and this one who's another author. And by, by the end of the night, I had 10 friends, you know, and um, it's like every day I feel the community is growing and uh, it's it's really, it's really nice. And I'm I'm actually just about to start a new writing group with a couple of authors who I've, you know, just met through going to things and being with people. And I, so I love the writer life. That's great. It's true. You can, I mean, people A, are so nice and B, willing to help. And yes, I mean, there's this misconception that's so sweet. Your mom said that, because that's something my mom would totally say to me, you know, like worrying about the things. Yeah. That, that that they perceive. But I feel like when I'm writing, I I don't know. I don't ever feel alone when I'm doing it. Like I'm it's like some other thing. It's like you don't worry about feeling alone when you're like in a yoga class or something. You right. know, like or it, I don't know. It's like a different something. It's almost self-care. It's like yeah, inside it's, your head and sorting through your thoughts. And um I agree. And I actually I like find no, one, it no one's like I'm worried about you feeling alone because you've been doing so much running. Right. Right. Like you're like, no, of course you're alone, but you're, you know, you're listening to music and you're doing this and like, it's good for you. And, you know, you're not really alone. I mean, you're, even if you're at home on a treadmill, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. No, I agree with you. I think it's, 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 it's therapeutic on some level. And, um, you know, I find it, it's almost like, you know, charging your cell phone. If that's how I am when I write, when I get up from the computer and go back out into the world, I have much more energy than I did before you know, spending that time by myself and recharging like that. So, but, you know, I think it's funny, you know, the other thing my mom has said that I keep talking about recently is, you know, one of the the main uh, catalysts in the book for everybody figuring out that there's a genetic situation that may have arisen is that the two dads and their sons decide to do like a 23andMe kind of a genetic test. And so everybody keeps asking me, have I done a 23andMe? And I have not because my mother has asked me not to. What? (laughs) So I'm like, wait a minute. If I didn't look so much like both of my parents, I would be really freaked out by this. But um, she doesn't want me to have my system, my like the systems to have my information out there. She's she's concerned that, uh, you know, first she's like, I don't really, you know, the government will know you're Jewish. I think that cat's out of the bag. 
Second, you know, it's just, it's bad for identity, identity theft, whatever it may be. So I have, my father did a test and he's 99.9% Eastern European Ashkenazi Jew, which was no surprise. They actually contacted him. As am I, by the way. <laughs> they contacted him like a year, he did it like years ago and they contacted him after they had sort of like refined their equipment. And I guess they had new information and told him that he was 1% Irish and I'm like, I knew it. I've always loved Ireland so much. It's sort of, you know, you take me back to the bagpipes, which is not exactly because Scotland, but then they contacted him a year later and they said, no, it was a mistake. He's still just Ashkenazi Jewish. Oh my God. Yes. Well, I don't know. I mean, there are, maybe there are other guys out there who look kind of like your dad. Could be. You know, I, it's been funny. I've been in some Facebook groups where I've been like talking with readers. And if I ask the question, have you ever done a DNA test? And did you, have, did you find out any surprises? One after another, after another, the comments are, you know, I discovered my dad was really my uncle or my, oh my brother gosh. was my father or what, any of the craziest stories. And if that's just in these little Facebook groups with, you know, like a, a thousand members or whatever it may be. So there must be so many people out there who have discovered crazy things so, you know, I think it's great for people who like that information. And for me, I've just, I've decided to take, to follow my mom's advice and decide that ignorance is bliss. <laughs> you know? All right. Well, I don't know. That could be a memoir for you. Let's see what happens. <laughs> for sure. Close to the best. Okay. Last question. Any advice for aspiring authors? Yes. I think the most important thing is to write as much as you can and not wait for the best idea you've ever had or the thing that you know is going to work and just sit your your butt in the chair and get words on the page because once the words are down, you can edit, you can revise. And sometimes in the, just in the way that like talking with a friend may give you an idea and help you think of something, actually putting words on the page may make you think of something that has nothing to do with the words you're writing that, you know, inspires a whole different story. So I think, you know, if you're not, if you're not writing, you can't call yourself a writer. So you got to sit down and write. All right. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. Jackie, thank you. I really enjoyed your book. I loved the characters. The pacing was great. It like moved so quickly and you just kept wanting to like turn the page and figure out what was going to happen. And I was debating what I thought I would want to do in that scenario. Anyway, it was it made you think and feel and all the good things. So yeah, it was really great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay. All right. I hope to see you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.